no humanity They fire at our family Our flow will be the remedy Cause water got no enemy Welcome to Out of the Margins. On today's episode, we continue our conversation with AFF board members past and present, taking a look at the lessons they've learned in their 20-year journey to show up for racial justice. Take a listen. And what are the myths that you really want people to like think about and challenge and name and, and unpack? I'll offer one, and then I'll let Molly go. Um, I, I would say that, you know, you, you're told that as a board member, your responsibility is to the mission of the organization. And there is this, I think, a myth that you have to know what's best, right? That it is your responsibility to be informed enough to know what's best in order to fulfill that mission. And I would reverse it and say instead that um, the communities that we are working with actually know. Um, and, but it, but to that, that's a hard thing to let go of um, because you feel like you're you're not doing your job properly as a trustee um, unless you quote unquote know what's that's a great one right like how do we shift the paradigm that maybe the skill sets that are needed are not um, a particular ability to frame things or have all of the information but maybe like a skill set of deeper listening and and following the lead of others and trusting others expertise that's great, Stephanie. What do you think, Molly? What are some of like the myths that you've seen in real time as people are in their change process? You know, I think one thing that I really grappled with early on and is still a conversation that we continue to have and haven't quite figured out yet is um, the balance between like the, the risk and the outcomes, right? We, we want to know exactly what the, the dollars are going to be used for and what that's going to lead to. And in this work, we might never know, right? Like, the, especially within the organizing work, right? Like sometimes we, we talk a lot about how a loss is sometimes a learning and how that then provides momentum for the next fight. Um, so I think, you know, my type A brain has really had to grapple with this notion of sort of reporting or like what, what are we helping move forward with this money? And I think um, we've had a lot of good conversations as a board about like, do we need to know that before funding an organization? Do we trust that the leadership within the organization, that the community that um, this grant is going to knows best and knows what that impact will be and where those dollars need to go? Um, without justifying to us uh, what that impact will be, without defining what that impact will be. Obviously, I think, you know, there's, there's the notion of being responsible grant makers, but to Lindsay's point about trust-based philanthropy, can we trust that our grantee partners know what they're doing and know, know the needs of the folks on the ground to distribute that money responsibly and know what the the need is um you know this notion of reporting and even across um foundations and government the amount of time that is spent reporting and through applications and you know i think through a lot of grantee convenings we've we've dreamt about this um like single application or report out process that um, you know, how do we, how do we allow 
our grantee partners to really focus on the work rather than on the telling us what we need to know to make us comfortable, right? Like, again, sitting in that discomfort and, you know, the, the exchange of money for a product or a service or something. I think we were, again, creations of a capitalist society who need to know the definition of that exchange when, when we're talking about people, that's not possible. And it, we shouldn't be using the same language we talk about um, services and values with for, you know, human beings who have a, a value that we can't put a price tag on or count the same way we count um, other goods and services. So I think um, it was meant for that to be a shorter answer, but I think the, the, the notion of outcomes and like reporting and knowing exactly what we're going to get or what those dollars are going to do has really challenged my thinking and continues to be something, especially through COVID and these uprisings that, again, how do we release control and say, we trust that the money is going to do the work. We trust your, um, you know, goals as an organization. Now let us get out of the way and let you do your thing. Holly, can I just interject to say that when you were talking about putting a price tag on work and human, I was like, oh my God, you're defining colonialism as slavery. This is, yeah. this, is, this is a parallel in the philanthropic world, right? That is, it has to be dismantled. We have a board member who's written a book about it. I just want to, I want to add, I think a lot of people ask, of AFF, and we've talked a little bit about the fact that we have community board members, but I think the piece that I would add to this, you know, high level myth that stands in the way is that that a mission is an outward facing thing. Um, when in fact, you, a mission, it has to be, you know, multi-directional and it has to be internally facing as well. And so I think when we talk about and learn about and try and implement racial justice in through the work of our grantees and our partners we also have a responsibility to do that within our own organizations within philanthropy and so what does that look like i think is that's the question and i think we you know we've tried at aff to explore some pathways for doing that um one of which was to bring on you know incredible community board members who you know are you know, bring an incredible wealth of knowledge and expertise to our board. I think there's also, you know, it also goes for, as Molly said, you know, how we assess the work, if that's even the right way to put it. Um, you know, what it, what are we, what do we expect from our partners? What do they, what do they expect from us, right? Like who do, who, who do we need to be to really show up as their partners? I think it's a, it's a big myth that, the mission of an organization is only about what happens on the outside. A couple of thoughts coming to the surface for me, and one to build on this this theme of trust, right? Trust-based philanthropy, trusting our partners, trusting the knowledge that they have, and and Molly pointed out the looking at our practices, and you know, trustees continue in this sector, and the data shows it to fund um, restricted, you know, kind of project-based focused kinds of efforts. And it's often uh, the lack of funding for, that is unrestricted, the lack of funding that is multi-year, you know, the data doesn't, it, the, the needle has not moved on that. 
and and I I know that from my my role as, as on the board of of Geo of Grantmakers for Effective Organizations that has been pushing and advocating for that type of approach for so long. So as we think about um, the myth, the myth of what it what is that that's getting in our way to not see that actually general operating support, unrestricted funding, is an essential piece to allowing and sharing the power to allow our partners to work on their missions, to work on and be able to pivot and adapt to consist constantly changing issues and needs that they face all the time. And so, and, and, and yeah, it doesn't feel it's fun. You can't get your hands around it. You can't measure it as much, but we have got to learn that that is, that's just a myth. It's just feeding and, and making us feel better and feel like we, we can kind of still maintain some level of control. The other piece I would add is, um, in many in many uh, boards, uh, there's just a bit of a savior mentality that we are here to serve these communities, to save and to serve and to to give our resources to 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 create, you know, change and and make their their lives better. And we we continue to to have a deficit based language in our field. That, that we have got to get our heads out of, our got to get our thinking out of, and to see and to recognize and to shift this this myth mentality that that we are coming in to save these underserved communities. We have got to pivot on our language and how our how we think and talk and look at it from a much more of an asset based mindset to understand the resilient that resilience and strengths and to know that those those communities those people in those communities have the solutions already um, that we just have to tap into and then the final myth piece that I would I would lift up that I ha- hasn't been explicitly named is this this notion of the other 95 percent um, there's a myth in philanthropy that you know oh look at we're, we're giving out five percent a year of our our endowments, our, our assets, and, and that is what we need to do, and that's going to be enough. And that is such bullshit. Part of me, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on on a podcast, but it is. So it's bullshit, right? It, it's, we have 95% of these enormous assets that, that sit there, and we have this myth that as good stewards and good trustees, we have to make sure that these these endowments are are healthy and growing and sustain and have perpetuity. And I am not advocating. I mean, certain is 103 years old, so we have we have been living in that for a long time of trying to sustain an endowment. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But in these moments, in this work for justice and social and racial justice, we, we've got to go. We've got to go well beyond five percent. We we have to double down, and we have to stay in those mindsets of of not trying to protect and be so cautious uh, for our assets. For for whom? For whom? And for what purpose? So, pushing ourselves to get out of that thinking is is really an essential piece of that. Um, and and not and, and also recognizing that there's other aspects and assets of our of our work that we can leverage, whether it's communications in our voice and bringing other funders to the table to support groups and to support grassroots movements, um, leveraging our roles as trustees um, in power positions to to make sure we're, we're leveraging every angle that we can um, in our in our service and our governance um, in our practice.
one of the pieces that I think trustees lack and the reason why general operating support doesn't happen, the reason why this trust-based philanthropy calling doesn't happen is I, I actually believe, and this is, uh, you know, my theory, but that, you know, trustees are not, most of us are not on the front lines with all of you in, you know, like you, Manuela, doing this work with our partners. We're, we're not learning at the same kind of depths and proximity that um, so many people are in, in these movements and in this work. And so there's a little disconnect that we have around what does it truly mean to do community-driven philanthropy, community and share power in terms of dreaming together, in terms of practicing together, in terms of coming up with solutions together and designing how we measure our progress together. I mean, we don't, we can talk about that theoretically, but I don't think trustees have seen it and um, in a tangible way, an approximate way enough to understand how that practice plays out in the field and and therefore we 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 often go back to our safety zones and our our safety nets of well a little bit more restriction on this because we we lose a little control and so teaching trustees teaching community driven practice elements and and uh, principles um and seeing it and touching it more more tangibly those opportunities are essential for trustees to move move past some of the behaviors that I think we've um, perpetuated in this sector. Yeah, I think just to, to build on that, I think, you know, when we, when AFF was grappling with what to do in the COVID moment and with the uprising, I think we knew because of what you just said, Kelly, that we could not stop with the 20th anniversary visioning work that we were doing with communities. You know, we have a table of, leaders that includes youth from these communities from our grantee partners that are going to help that are going to be the ones who design where it is we need to go to actually accomplish the goals that they've laid out and you know as a as a group of trustees you know we were able to do our own reflection on this question and you know bring our own thinking to that table as well i mean it was it, it's been a beautiful process so far and you know even though we're in a very different place as you know as a nation as an organization as trustees as we were than we were in february when we were all together the last time in person um it's you know it's still such important work to do exactly what you said and you know work with these communities be in partnership with them let them guide where we're going to be headed thank you guys you have shared such a wealth of knowledge and and learnings in your journey as trustees for social justice philanthropy. And we are going to be wrapping up soon. But before I do, I just wanted to name that some of the myths that you identified are endemic to the worldview. They are actually baked into the your understanding of how the world functions and operates. And as Stephanie so um, beautifully named, it's actually, they constitute a colonial mentality, a mentality that is about white supremacy, that is about capitalism in its worst expression, full extraction of, of goods and material resources and labor from people without centering people and caring for people. And so I think that understanding that when we superimpose this water that we are all swimming in of racism, white supremacy, 
and colonialism and use those same methods and approaches into our philanthropic work, it is second nature to do that. And it's even worse when we are not in the front lines or directly impacted by the issues that we're funding, to your point, Kelly. And so knowing that there is already, will always already be a blind spot and layers of disconnect is where the opportunity for vulnerability and humility and the skill of deep listening and trust is probably the best, the very best way any funder could show up in this moment. And I really am so grateful that you guys named that because those were the, the, the practices that will actually help us change philanthropy. And so if I was hoping for your parting thoughts, you could talk about what are the practices that you're personally leaning into, either in your personal life, in your work, um, as an organizer, a family organizer, a peer educator, to your point, Molly, um, in your personal liberation work as a white woman, right? Um, because you, you guys also have liberation work to do. We all do, to your point, Stephanie. That anti-racism work, the beneficiaries are as much white people as they are people of color. You get to reclaim and, and reconnect with your own humanity, right? What are those practices that you guys are, are leaning into in this season that you want other trustees to take up, to try on for size, to think about as we collectively build a more anti-racist society and particularly in, um, deconstruct and eradicate anti-Blackness in this, in, in, in this nation? After leaving the board, I uh, was one of five white facilitators in my school, in my college. Um, who facilitated a conversation for a multiracial group on race. And it was hard <laughs> and it was uncomfortable. Um, but I felt like it was the next step, you know, after, as Molly described, the, at AFF in the boardroom, we have created something quite unusual. Um, but it still is pretty safe, you know, it's, um, it's a predominantly white and powerful group of family members. Um, and the conversations there sort of remain mostly, I mean, this podcast perhaps accepted, <laughs> but uh, mostly between the walls of that room. Um, and so that was definitely a next step for me. Um, I think that it's my responsibility as a teacher um, of a, you know, school that is still predominantly white, but, you know, about 30% students of color, um, a lot of students with intersecting identities that are um, dealing with their own, you know, liberation and coming of age and creative practice and as a white woman in that space. Um, it just that that was definitely uh, a necessary next step. Um, and then in my kids' school, uh, I, I joined parent council. <laughs> I joined parent council, and uh, I'm going to be teaming up with some of the, the teachers there um, to do some anti-racism work within the school community that looks at, um, you know, the community building, hiring practices, curriculum, and, and just general culture. Um, but yeah, it's, it feels like my work would be, my, my work in life would be quite empty without, um, continuing on the work that I started at AFF with all of you. And I'm so grateful every day and I miss you. During the uprising, there's been a lot of 
criticism rightly leveled at the environmental community for our overwhelming whiteness. And I think that, you know, every organization has to grapple with these things in their own way. But there is also, I think we, we run the risk of not realizing or not getting to the point where we realize that this is a systems issue um, and it's not an organizational issue. Um, it's both and all of the above. And it's, it's, like a, it's like a cancer. If you don't get rid of it at every level, it will find its way back. These sort of legacies of white supremacy and systemic racism, they poison all of us too. It's not a, you know, my experiences in the workplace are less positive when they have been less positive because of this. And I am not, you know, someone who is personally victimized by this. If anything, I, I benefit from the system. But I think in particular, when I've felt like I was bumping up against impossible odds to make change, you could see you could see the veins of the oppression that just sort of weighed on everything. And, you know, so throughout my career, I think I've tried, this is a, it's a huge thing to try and get your head around. And it, it is one of the things that feels so overwhelming, I think for us as individuals, a lot, um, people who want to be proactive, who want to get active on this issue, you can easily feel overwhelmed. Everyone can see, you can seek out the small spaces where you have control over things like, you know, maybe it's just your, in my case, you know, your small team of women who do environmental policy together. And you can, as a supervisor, you know, create a space for goal setting and for helping them achieve what they want to achieve in their workplace, making things a little bit better for the people immediately around you. Um, you know, obviously I think there are some, there are some really good metrics out there for, you know, organizations need to be, we need to be doing more hiring. We need to be doing more, you know, um, inclusion of, you know, African-American scientists and um, experts in all the work we do. Uh, but I think also it's a, you know, there are some really, there's just tiny little things you can do every day. Um, and I think, again, taking a look at your own organization, your own philanthropic organization to say, what are the things about that our staff are experiencing, that are in this particular moment, I think with COVID, a lot of this is very raw, right? Are people able to check in on their actual sort of their experiences? Is this, is, are we actually upholding the systems that are oppressing all of us? Or are we finding ways every day, just a little way to make it a little bit better? I think I've just really been trying to focus on accountability so accountability for myself, accountability for resourcing and educational groups that I'm in, for the book clubs that I'm in, for the workplaces that I'm in, um, sort of meeting people where they are and figuring out how we can hold each other accountable for the, the goals we've set and the work we want to accomplish, right? Acknowledging that everyone's at a little bit of a different place. Um, you know, I think the the notion of sort of fatigue and how we keep up this work um just acknowledging that what people have space for in that moment what they're dealing with in other places in their life right um you know i personally was part of that crowd that with all of the great resources and um podcasts and books and documentaries being shared i like went ahead and just click 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 clicked and ordered a bunch of stuff and then realized that like 
I need a little bit of, of mental space and flexibility to say, you know what, I, I read this book about anti-racist work and I got a lot from it, but I need to pivot and read a novel. But instead of retreating back to my white bubble, can I read a novel written by a Black woman, right? There are other ways for me to do the work outside of the literal work. Um, how, where are my resources going, right, across the board? Um, just being really mindful about where I'm spending money, where I'm spending time, what I'm um, giving energy to. So again, I think the work takes shape in a lot of different ways. And we're lucky to have our board meetings and committee calls as sort of accountability milestones. But outside of that, right, how do we find ways to create collective accountability for this work and share resources and acknowledge that it's going to be, there's going to be ups and downs, right? You're going to have seasons where you're all in and seasons where you do need to maybe um, take a step back and um, think about a different kind of support. So uh, I'm, I'm sitting there now in, in this moment and within my uh, circles. So really just thinking about how we have shared uh, collective accountability. The beauty of a family um, trustee board is that you have that support system in place too. When you feel exhausted, there's someone else who's there who's ready to do the work. That's so true. Um, so I'll end with a, you know, a practice that I think is really essential that's been powerful for me is, you know, when our world allows us more in-person connection again um, that we're also craving and missing, um, you know, making a trip with your boards to Montgomery, Alabama, to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, to sit and take in history that we most likely as white people were not really taught or exposed to at the, that depth at all, um, to then be and hold space, um, facilitated space for dialogue, for de de decompressing and, and, and processing, um, even with artists, uh, bringing social justice artists along in those experiences. Um, and, a, and a shout out to a nonprofit called Impact Experience, led by a, a young young next gen leader, Jenna Nicholas, and this was um, the experience that that I I had with this, her organization and a, and a group of very diverse people um, going on a journey um, to understand history, to to really see what what where this wealth has been built um, and how we modernize slavery today. Um, that matters. That matters as part of our our journey and, and our work, and, to con and 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 matters to inform our continued practice. But it's also a caution to not get into a pattern for boards of checking the box, checking the box that we did the book reading and the book club, and checking the box that we did the history tour, checking the box that we made two hours of time to do a racial equity training, and that's going to be enough. And so. Um, that's a that's a little cautionary piece to this of how we have to embed this practice on an ongoing basis. And then I think personally, as a as a steward of philanthropy and or in a role that I play is you know in different spaces, um, practicing continue to build my skill sets of how I stand up against microaggressions and racism 
that I, I still see, you know, all the time in different circles, unintendedly or intendedly. How do we stand up, but then also hold the frame of what John Powell at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, you know, lifts up so, so powerfully is this notion of belonging, building bridges and versus othering people. So how do we hold space and build skills to have dialogue across real difference, across political difference, ideology, um, ideological difference. Um, we, we certainly have that in our own family. And so instead of othering and casting out, we have got to develop better skills. And I'm working on my skills to, to build those bridges and, and belonging opportunities. Um, and then the final thing I'll end with, just because it's shaped who I am in so many ways, is, is for family philanthropy and trustees to please don't overlook centering younger voices in your work. Um, the younger family members in your families that you put at the kids' table often are the ones that will teach you the most and give you perspectives that we just still do not get and see more readily. Um, my, my being an older fifth gen, I still don't speak as eloquently and have the language and the skills that some of my younger, um, younger fifth gen and sixth gen family members do like that are ideally on this podcast, I would say. And, and so centering their voices, their perspectives, their leadership within the family philanthropic practice, um, and not just think that you have to have them wait and go through all the paces to earn their stripes to make it to the board seat. We're missing something there, people, and, and we, we have to open that up and, and share power with each other. So uh, pleasure to have been a part of this. Thanks, Manuela. I'll pass back to you. Thanks, Kelly. Stephanie, do you have any closing thoughts um, or advice? Or? Um, I was thinking about this this notion of what you do when, when it gets hard. And um, so I, I do a lot of work, as I mentioned, around climate change. And sometimes I just despair. I just get so caught up in grief that I don't know how to move forward. And um, I was listening to Krista Tippett talking. It was a, it's an old interview with John Lewis. And he said this, um, which I think he said in many different ways, but he said, you have to have this sense of faith that what you're moving toward is already done. It's already happened. It's the power to believe that you can see, that you visualize um, that sense of community, that sense of family, that sense of one house and you live that you're already there, that you are already in that community, part of that sense of one family, one house. If you visualize it, you can have faith that it's there. For you, it is already there. And um, so I, this, when I read this or heard this the other day, I thought that's gonna help me through this, the climate thing. Um, because how else can I, can I go on sometimes, you know, when it's, when it's really hard. Um, now, you know, it, it, I, I want to put this in the context of climate because I'm not a woman of color. So I, I, I don't want to lay claim to that experience in any ways. Um, but I think those are really important words of hope um, for us to spend some time visioning what that might look like. Um, what an anti-racist world institution, um, family, school would look like and live as if we're there. Um, like 
putting it into practice every day. And I think everybody else has said that in different ways, but those would be my, my parting shared thoughts. Thank you everyone for sharing your experiences around what it has meant to show up to become an anti-racist in your family, in your home, in your community, in your institution. Um, I am so grateful that you're willing to share the fact that you're on a journey. And Molly, to your point, that it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a long marathon. It's not a, a temporary sprint. And so the moments when you rest and restore and get back at it um, and situate yourself in connection and vision and hope is really what it's going to take. Um, the communities that we serve at Andrews Family Fund, um, the time is now, as they have told us, and they can no longer wait. And so we are doing our best and must continue to persevere um, by any means we can to show up for them and lean into this moment and to respond to the opportunity that we have to really become an anti-racist society and put it all on the table. Don't hold back, don't save it for later, don't wait for the rainy day. It is a thunderstorm and it's here. Um, so thank you all everyone for sharing your thoughts and I bid you see you soon um, in our lifelong connection. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Out of the Margin. Water got no enemy, but everybody's trying to contain it. Water was made to be free. I'ma let the hook explain it. We go to church with these verses, but my verse is the worst though, ain't it? Ain't it? Ain't it? Losing all humanity, they fire at our family. Our flow will be the remedy, cause water got no enemy.